right. Um, we're in 1 Samuel 4, and if you remember from last week, um, Samuel's gotten a nod from God and said, you're my man. Um, Eli and his sons are out. And now we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 4. And just let me give you a, a, a disclaimer on the front end. A lot of times you come to church and you think, man, I do not need to be beat up today. I really just need hope and, and, and mercy, right? And there's going to be some of that. But uh, there's also going to be a little bit of a smackdown on Christians. Um, and so you just have to just kind of bear with that. And if you're the, the person that loves to heap guilt upon yourself, just don't. And if you're not, maybe you ought to dip into that well um, at this point. Um, and there, there'll be mercy and good news at the end, I promise. Even though the end of the passage is awful. But uh, we'll, we'll start with, it's in your bulletin. I finally got my Bible back this week, so I'll read out of there. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Covenant had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her, and about the time of her death, 
The woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, hard as it is to hear it sometimes, and that we would um, hear it today, that your spirit would not only be poured out on me, but poured out on your hearers, that we would love you and love our neighbor. In your son's name, amen. Um, if you've ever watched shows like Arrested Development or mockumentaries like uh, Spinal Tap or uh, Best in Show, you understand that the, the main comic ingredient in that is you've got to have a straight man or a straight woman, somebody that is serious in the midst of all this chaos and confusion. And I wonder if Samuel didn't feel that way because he's got God saying every word that's coming out of your mouth is not going to fail. My word is going to be with you. My presence is now in the midst of Israel again because of you. And nobody is asking Samuel anything. Nobody is consulting him. Nobody is asking him about God's word. They're just going off and doing whatever they want. Now, if you're on the outside and you're looking in at Christian types, church types, uh, oftentimes when you hear that we rely upon God's word, to make decisions in our lives, you're like, that's fine. That, I, actually, I'm glad that that works for you. Just don't do it with big decisions. And if you do, just keep it to yourself because nobody wants to hear that. Um, now, people on the inside of the church, the Christian faith, um, have at times used God's word. Um, they've used things like prayer and religious practices, almost like... Uh, a magic spell so that we use God's word and and spiritual stuff like a, a rabbit's foot um, and so I think what the author of Samuel is doing is he's trying to get God's people to first of all listen to God's word again and secondly to uh, not treat it like a rabbit's foot and so we're gonna look at three basic things this morning one how they ignored the word and what that means, um, them missing the mercy seat, and then them forgetting holiness. And it's all going to kind of surround this box called the Ark of the Covenant. So let's look at the first thing, ignoring the world, uh, word. All right, Israel's history. If you went back to a book like Exodus, I've been, um, I'm, you know, every year I feel guilty about not reading the Bible in a year. You know, everybody's, you know, I'm going to do McShane's plan or whatever it is. Um, and I always fail to do it. But this year uh, I've figured out how to beat the system because I'm always in my truck driving around and there is a one year audio Bible. And so as soon as I get into the truck, it links up with my uh, stereo and it starts right in. I'm like, oh, good. All right. I can, I can. So we, I've been listening to Exodus for the last uh, few weeks or, yeah, a few weeks. And um, it's interesting. God reveals himself in these dramatic and very concrete ways. And every time he does it, Israel says, we're going to listen to you. We're going to do exactly what you have said. But it doesn't take too long for Israel and its leaders 
to actually bail on that promise. Even when they are going up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God tells them all these things, and he says, hey, stay down there. If you come any closer, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe you out. And then Moses takes all his, like, 70 leaders, and he takes Aaron, and they all go up there, and they have dinner with God, right? And it, maybe 40 days later, they're all at the base of the mountain having an orgy and, and making golden calves. So it didn't take them very long at all. They saw this, wonderful things, and then they blow it. And so what our text is telling us here is that Samuel and the word that he was proclaiming, it was doing great stuff. It says it never failed and everybody was hearing it and God's presence was also, uh, there, that he was this wonderful prophet, right? Yet when it comes to making decisions about their lives, they never consulted the word. They never consulted Samuel. They just said, hey, the Philistines are out there. Let's go do it. Let's go, let's go get in a, in a fight. Now, I think about us and our lives, um, and I think that awareness of the Bible isn't um, enough. See, like the, the majority of Israel was aware. They were aware of the scriptures. They had heard it. They had heard it read. They had uh, sung it. You know, they're singing the Psalms. They've heard it prayed. Um, all of these things. They've heard it even preached to them. So they're aware of the scriptures, but there was no indication that God's word was informing their decisions. So awareness isn't enough. Knowledge isn't enough. Um, a religious culture, not unlike the one that we kind of uh, traffic in, um, is oftentimes not only aware, but extremely knowledgeable, right? We, understand, we, we got a lot of book knowledge. We go out and we buy the commentaries and we got the ESV study Bible and all this good stuff. We understand uh, God's word. The leaders here, Eli, Ophni, Phineas, they're knowledgeable of God's word. They knew what the Bible said. They knew that the ark contained the book of the covenant, that it contained a jar of manna, that it contained Aaron's uh, budding staff or his rod, right? But knowledge isn't enough. So from the inside out of this box, the Ark of the Covenant, and from the outside in, the Ark constantly spoke about God's presence and about God's holiness and about his mercy and about his atonement and about our need and about justice. And yet it seems like Israel and its leaders kind of ignored all that and said, we're just going to use this thing. Instead, they preferred, like truthfully most of us, to uh, use God's word, to use church things, um, word and worship and holiness of life. We oftentimes we use them like a talisman. We use them like a, a, a rabbit's foot. And so the author of Samuel, I think, is telling Israel, he's telling God's people Look, you're supposed to be people of the word. You're supposed to be seeking God's face in every area of your lives. And it's God's word is more than what you think it is. It's more than something to just be aware of. It's more than something to just know more about. It's more than just an object to be used, and so is God more than just an object to be used. 
One of our best qualities as Americans is also uh, one of our blind spots, and that's pragmatism. Now, I'm going to give you the, the, the uh, Google search definition because uh, I'm, otherwise I don't know it. It says this. Pragmatism, the approach that assesses the truth of meaning and theories and beliefs in terms of their success, of their practical application. All right. In other words, it means this. Everything is run through the screen of, can I make this work? Can I make it work for me? Is it useful? Does it make sense on all levels? And if you followed Jesus for even a millisecond, you know that it doesn't make sense. It absolutely makes no sense following the king, following his word. If, if your goal is to follow him, then you're going to find out that a lot of times it doesn't uh, add up to the pragmatic standards that we hold a, a bunch of other stuff to. Because the kingdom of God is, is upside down. It says the, you know, what does he say? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. You've got to die to have life. All of that stuff, well, that means that the world standards of making things work, that's not going to work for us. Look, we're in the, we're in the, the uh, political zone uh, coming up in the next few months, and there are going to be multiple candidates from all different levels, local, uh, state, um, you know, the congressmen, and then, you know, the, the, the presidential candidates and things, things of that nature. And they're going to quote the Bible all over the place. And it's going to be awful because it's going to be wrong. They're just going to use it, right? And we're going to think, oh, they're, they're Christians. And when they, I don't know if they are or not, but they, they quote the Bible horribly. Um, when we have problems that arise, what happens is we usually go to the Bible and we use like a, a Google search or WebMD. I got a problem. I got to figure out how to deal with this problem. We, we fail to, to, to realize that it's living and active piercing bone and marrow, right? It's like that book in Harry Potter the, for the, the treatment of magical creatures or whatever, the one, uh, if you watch those demonic movies, which I don't recommend. Um, but I had to do it because I'm a preacher and I got to know what the enemy's thinking. Uh, is, uh, it's got this book that's alive. It tries to bite you, right? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying about the Bible. It's living and active. Instead, we, we treat, treat it like a database or recipes for comforting sayings. And I'm not saying that there aren't recipes in there and there aren't comforting sayings. There, there are. But if that's all it is, man, when, when the hard stuff happens, and if it hasn't, I'm sorry, it will. Um, it's not going to be very comforting at all. Or we, we, we treat the Bible and church things along this spectrum of, of thinking that we're, we're treating it with a tremendous amount of respect. We get the calfskin ESV. You pour out the big money for that one. Calfskin study Bible ESV with all the creeds in it. Um, every time the doors are open at the church, you're there. Or you got a Bible, but you don't ever read it. And your church attendance is whenever it's convenient. Um, or you're addicted to serving others, or you don't think about people at all, and all you do is serve yourself. All, we're on this spectrum, maybe at different places at different times in our life. So when God said to Samuel back in chapter 3, 
I'm about to do something that's going to cause people's ears to tingle. I'm pretty sure they didn't think it's going to be the Philistines kicking our butts and taking the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't think that's what God was going to do. But that's exactly what he did do. And their attitude when that happened was, God can't walk away from us. We're the people of the book. We understand these things. We know these things. We own the ark. Get him out here and let's get busy. We'll show him and we'll show everybody else that he can't have any authority apart from us. Now, here's where I said it was a little bit bad for Christian types. If you persist in ignoring God's word, if you persist in ignoring the mercy of God and the holiness of God, the testimony of the Bible is that he can walk away for very long times, maybe even forever. But also, in any relationship, if you're using the other party, it's never going to benefit you. It's not good for you anyhow to think of Christianity this way. And I'm speaking to the best of us, those who, who are living righteously, but do so because life hasn't been awful yet. And I'm also speaking to nominal Christians. Um, that means you're a Christian in name only. You know a lot, but you keep choosing what the world has to offer. And then, oddly enough, you use the Bible to justify that. That's not a good place to be. All right, second thing, us missing the mercy seat. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, this box, I forget how, how big it is, but it's, got, uh, it's made of gold and, and all these things. You can read about it in Exodus, how it was made. And it was covered with this thing called the mercy seat. I mean, that's, that's what they called the, the covering of the box, was the mercy seat. And a lot of times you, you say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but in this instance, you should. You should judge the box by its cover because it's called the mercy seat. We read earlier in the bulletin out of John that, that had this big fancy word called propitiation, and that's kind of the New Testament translation of what this mercy seat is called. It's God covering us. It's God uh, uh, giving us life when we didn't deserve it. And the thing that I find interesting about the ark is that it's covering the stuff that's inside. And the stuff that's inside is the law. And the stuff that's inside is God's providence, you know, the manna, and God's deliverance, this, this staff, Right? And it says in the Old Testament that, that God's name dwelt, his presence dwelt not on the judgment seat, although at some point he's going to come back and sit on a judgment seat. But at this point, and for us from here and now, he's sitting on the mercy seat. And that's where he meets us. That's where we, we worship him, Right? And that involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice of an innocent animal without any blemish. And the high priest would take uh, a hyssop branch and he would dip it in the blood of the innocent animal and he would throw it, you know, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. We're Presbyterians. We like sprinkle. 
Remember that. Sprinkle. Not immerse, but sprinkle. Uh, and then he turns around and he takes the blood of the innocent animal and he throws it at the people too and covers them with that. So they are covered by mercy even though God's wrath was poured out on this innocent animal. The mercy seat's also covering us. It's covering us from failing to live up to the tablets that are in that box. It's covering us from failing to ignore God's providence in our lives. It's covering us from failing to ignore God's deliverance in our lives. It gives us grace and forgiveness. And so when Israel lost to Philistia, they didn't remember mercy or grace. They didn't remember that they actually had a need for that stuff. Instead, what they said is, you go to Shiloh and you get the ark. They did ask a question. It was a good question. Why did the Lord defeat us? It's a head scratcher. Why did the Lord? At least they recognized that it was God's doing. But then they went straight from that to miss their need. And it's almost as though they said, and this is my sanctified speculation. We've got theologians in here, pastors, and they can chastise me later for being wrong. And I might be, but I think I'm right. It's almost as though they said, let's remind God who he is. Let's remind him that we can't lose. Let's rein him in just a bit. Let's bring out the ark without the priest's bidding, without Samuel's bidding, without them going before God and asking all these things. They just said, let's bring it out. And let's make him do what we want done. Let's forget mercy. Let's forget its need. And let's assume that the only reality is the one that we're projecting. Is that we need to win. So mercy shows up, and they demand justice. God's presence shows up in a mercy. Here's how God's presence shows up in a mercy, because they, they take him out into battle, and they lose. And that's a mercy to them. They already lost because they went out and, and without God's permission, without any, anything else. They should have known, hey, something's not right here. They lose again, and it's a mercy. They invoked the presence of God, and mercifully, he didn't deliver. And so my question for us is, where are we missing the mercy of God? I was telling my counselor a few weeks ago, um, I was like, hey, look, I'm, I'm struggling with all sorts of worry and anxiety and I have a general lack of peace in my life because of the circumstances of my life. And he said this to me. And he's been meeting with me for a while. He said, David, you need to rest in Christ and seek the joy of the Lord. Now, I didn't say this out loud, but this was in my head. I was like, Doc, that's sort of like telling somebody 20 feet underwater, wrapped in a very heavy chain, you need some air. Like, of course I need some air, but I got all this on me. And at first I was like a little bit mad and um, that I had to pay for that. And, um, <laughs> but as I thought about it, it's not unlike Jesus telling Nicodemus, hey, you need to be born again. He tells him to 
be the very thing he can't do. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I need. I need mercy. I need to see my need of it. And um, that's what these people had an opportunity to see, and they missed it. Maybe you've got that same opportunity because there's stuff in your life right now that is extremely jacked up, and you're thinking, I need you to fix it, and maybe you just need to rest in the middle of it and say, God, I need you. Maybe I don't need you to fix this, but I definitely need you. All right, third thing, God's holiness displayed and forgotten. The ark was made of gold, precious thing. They put rings on the side of it. They made poles for it because they want, he said, I want it carried. I don't want it touched. I want it covered. I want it behind a curtain a lot of the times. I want it in the, you know, this special place. And I only want it brought out when God says to bring it out. And the author of Samuel, I think, wants to remind his audience that they were people of the word. They were people belonging to and loved by a merciful God, and that they were people set apart to be holy by a holy God. And they forgot, not unlike us, all of these things. So much so that if the beginning of the chapter is, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel, and the last words are, the glory of the Lord had departed. They had forgotten it so much so that it was Ichabod. Throughout Israel's history, until their final exiles to uh, uh, Syria and Babylon, God's presence with his people was like here and gone, here and gone. You know, they'd mess up and he'd leave, and they'd mess up and, he'd, and then they'd cry out and he'd come back, right? But in these last days, we've got... Um, the presence of God manifested in a person. We've got it all, word, mercy, and holiness in the person of Jesus, so much so that John, at the beginning of his gospel, says, look, he, he tabernacled among us. He, he came and dwelt in our midst. Jesus is the personification of the Ark of the Covenant, not just the mercy seat, the whole shooting match. And he was sent out from the heavenly temple by God to lead us in victory, and he was ignored, and he was forgotten, and he was crucified. But here's the good news. The glory didn't depart at that point. Let me uh, read for, our, for you briefly what Hebrews chapter 2, um, and then we'll look at Hebrews 4. If I can find Hebrews. Where's Hebrews, Doc? Oh, it's before James. There it is. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says this. Uh, well, I'll start in verse 8. Remembering, remember Jesus Christ. Oh, no, that's 2 Timothy. Sorry. We'll get there. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so but by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Glory didn't depart. We get to see it in him. All right, here's the, here's the so what. God's glory is manifested. It's not departed even in the midst of our rebellion, even while we were yet sinners. 
Christ died for us. And that's either going to soften your heart or it's going to tick you off. I hope it doesn't make you mad. Maybe, actually I do. Mad's good. Being, yeah, is, is worse. But I want you to know that ours is not their situation. The glory hasn't departed. It's actually staring you in the face. In, in Hebrews 4, I'll just read this and then we'll close. He, he gives us this warning. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he closes this chapter this way. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 